Well, hello and welcome to the Wednesday Word, a Desert Spring United Methodist Church podcast coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, we, uh, My name is Julie Hart and I am the Director of Connectional Ministries here at Desert Spring and the host of the Wednesday Word. So right now we're in the middle of a short series of letter writing. We've been sharing letters, uh, reading letters, kind of um, gearing up towards a letter writing workshop series that I'm going to be doing with uh, my good friend, friend to many of you, Phyllis Murray, uh, that will be um, launching in December. So in the meantime, I've been doing a lot of thinking about letters and research about letters. And so my guests today are actually not here in the studio because my guests have um, already lived their lives. And uh, so I'll be reading words that letters that they have written um, long ago. These are letters written from very famous and familiar people to us, um, letters written to their children. And uh, as a mom who uh, has a mother of two sons, uh, both uh, in the military right now and a son getting ready to deploy, to deploy just a couple of days after uh, the recording that uh, we're doing right now. Um, yeah, I think a lot about that. And so uh, things I want to leave behind and write uh, words I want to write to my own my own sons. And so um, I hope that these letters are something that maybe will inspire you to uh, just to write, whether to your children or to someone, you know, words that are left behind. Without further ado, we will dig into some of the letters that we have here, kind of a, a range of letters that we will be sharing. So let's begin. So the first letter I'm going to read is uh, was written by John D. Rockefeller Jr. to his five children. Um, he was, uh, Rockefeller was a, a, a philanthropist, a successful career business person, uh, who was known for saying to whom much is given, much is expected was sort of the motto that he lived by. And so this is a letter that he has written to his five sons, uh, John Nelson, Lawrence Winthrop and David. And at the time, uh, they are anywhere between uh, 37 uh, and 28 years old. It's written uh, December 21st in 1943. And I'll read a bit from this. He says, Dear boys, from the time Grandfather Rockefeller, a lad of about 16, got his first position, his ledger A records the fact that he was making current contributions to worthy causes and needy people, although the amounts were sometimes not more than three or five cents. This practice he continued all his life, increasing the amounts thus devoted to the betterment of his fellow men as his own resources increased. One of the earliest recollections of my childhood, childhood is grandfather's reading to us at the table letters of appeal which he had received from individuals or on behalf of causes and discussing with us their merits and what answers should be made. He began to teach us to give and to save regularly when our allowances or the monies we earned by doing various family chores amounted to not more than 10 cents a week. With this inheritance and early training, it was natural that we children should have commenced to give away money for the benefit of other people and causes in our early youth, and that our gifts should have increased as grandfathers did with increasing resources. After I had worked with Grandfather and his other associates for a few years in developing and organizing his 
philanthropic gifts on an ever broadening scale. And it had become apparent to him that I was seeking with what means I then had to be helpful to my fellow men as he always had been. Grandfather gave me from time to time, increasingly large sums. These gifts he made, he said in making them because he felt confident he could count upon my continuing to do for my fellow man as he had done, thus adding to the extent and diversity of the gifts for public purpose, which he had been making. These monies received from grandfather, I have always regarded as a trust, as he sought to develop in his children the desire and ability to conserve their funds and to use them for the benefit of mankind. So from an early age, I have sought to do the same with you children and have added from time to time to your resources, as I have noted the wisdom as well as generosity with what you have used a substantial portion of them for the betterment of your fellow man. So I want to pause here for a moment just to say how much I, I love the this uh, tradition and the passing on of tradition and just the um, understanding from generation to generation of how important it is to to share um, to share the resources that we have. And so I'll skip to the end of the letter where he goes on to say, in the meantime, it is not too early for you to begin preparing and training your children to bear their share in these responsibilities. In the hope that they will be helpful to that end, I am setting up a trust for each of your children with the securities listed in the accompanying memorandum. I have chosen this time to set up the trust because it is the spirit of him whose birth the world is about to celebrate that inspires all worthy living and generous giving. Affectionately, Father. So just taking a moment to kind of reflect on that and um, and all that's in there. Um, I uh, Again, I love, I love the tradition of uh, caring for one another and uh, not just taking care of the own of our own. And that is a tradition that uh, continues to live on uh, there for the Rockefeller family and um, just something beautiful to be able to read. All right. So the next letter that I have here is from Ansel Adams to his son, Michael Adams. Ansel Adams, of course, is a famous photographer and environmentalist. Uh, uh, and Michael, his son, was raised uh, actually in Yosemite National Park. Um, but this is a letter written to his 20-year-old son, Michael, who had um, just joined the Air Force. And it's written in 1953. And I won't read all of it, but just a little piece of it to um, get an idea here. He says, you are now a man joining up with a very important part of our national defense. What is more important, you are taking your place in the pattern of our time, which exists whether we like it or not. I never joined up with anything. I have missed the peaks of such experiences, and I envy you considerably. Now, you are quite far from the little boy in Michael and Anne in Yosemite's Valley, and yet I wonder how far you can get or really want to get from that particular kind of reality. I doubt if you can ever realize the advantages of being raised in Yosemite. Only outsiders could grasp the, the potentials. But such a life would have value only if it instilled in you some awareness of intangible qualities beyond the ordinary. I think it has done this for you and that you will fully appreciate them in the future. I've spent a very good part of my life trying to understand the obligations of a parent. 
The conventional idea of a parent is very obnoxious to me. We gave you considerable freedom of being. It was a pet theory of ours. I think it worked out quite well. I see nothing about you that I am not proud of. If you are man enough to join the Air Force, you are man enough to comprehend the problems surrounding us. I've never talked much about the morality because I trusted your innate sense of values to carry you through, and I distrust words written or spoken about wordless things. I've had quite a lot to do with the external world, and I'm quite a lot with the internal world, too. I am wondering in the afternoon of my own life just what your day will be. It will take much effort, devotion, and compassion, something beyond the thin skin of morality, to bring you to full realization of what it is to be a man in the face of the world as it is now in the face of the perplexing future. You cannot be misled by the obvious easy way. There isn't any. He goes on to write a little bit further and ends with good luck and all our love, Ansel. I think my my favorite part of this letter is uh, that he he finds the conventional idea of a parent uh, being very obnoxious. Obviously, um, you know, he didn't parent in the in the typical way at the time, and and what an experience that that must have been um, growing up around that. Um, it around that beauty, surrounded by that beauty, and um, by by the art and the giftedness um, that his dad had. So, what a beautiful letter! Well, so for the next letter, we go to 1993, and this is Henry Louis Gates Jr. Uh, to his daughters Maggie and Liza. Henry was a professor at Harvard um, in African American Studies. He was a writer and a teacher, and uh, uh, wrote a book in 1994 talking about growing up in West Virginia and a book that began apparently as a series of letters to his daughters, Maggie and Liza. Um, uh, the book is uh, a memoir, uh, Colored People. So I'll read some parts of it. Um, it's really beautiful if you get a chance to read the whole letter, but he writes, I've written to you because of the day when we were driving home and you asked your mother and me just exactly what the civil rights movement had been all about. And I pointed to a motel on route two and said that at one time I could not have stayed there. Your mother could have stayed there, but your mother couldn't have stayed there with me. And you could, kids looked at us like we were telling you the biggest lie you had ever heard. So I thought about writing to you. Wow. He goes on a little bit later in the letter to say, one reason is a resentment at being lumped together with 30 million African-Americans whom you don't know and whom most of whom you will never know, completely by the accident of racism. We've been bound together with the people with whom we may or may not have something in common just because we are, quote, black. 30 million Americans are black and 30 million is a lot of people. One day you wonder, what do the misdeeds of a Mike Tyson have to do with me? So why do I feel implicated? And how can I not feel racial recrimination when I feel racial pride? There's a lot of complicated um, topics in the letter here, um, you know, trying to explain racism and, and race to his daughters. Uh, he goes on a little later in the letter to say, do you remember when your mother and I woke you up 
on early on Sunday morning just to watch Nelson Mandela walk out of prison and how it took a couple of hours for him to emerge and how you both wanted to go back to bed and then to watch cartoons and how we began to worry that something bad had happened to him on the way out because the day delay was so long. And when he finally walked out of prison, how we were so excited and teary-eyed at Mandela's nobility, his princeliness, his straight back, his unbowed head. I think I felt there walked the Nero, Negro, as Pop might have said. There walked the whole of the African people, as regal as any king. And that feeling I had, that goose flesh sense of identity that I felt at seeing Nelson Mandela, listening to Malaya Jackson sing, watching Muhammad Ali fight, or hearing Martin Luther King speak, is part of what I mean by being colored. And one more piece uh, of that letter a little bit later goes on to say, I am not every Negro. I am not native to the great black metropolis, New York City, Chicago, or Los Angeles, say, nor can I claim to be a, quote, citizen of the world. I am from and of a time and a place, Piedmont, West Virginia, and that's a whole world apart, a world of difference. So this is not a story of race, but a story of village, a family, and its friends, and of a sort of segregated peace. Anyway, he ends uh, the letter a little bit further, love, daddy. Wow. Complicated, uh, complicated history, complicated parts of their life uh, in that letter that um, I just uh, find so moving. Um, and again, it's a book with many of these letters, these this, these memoirs that are written. So this is just an excerpt of um, some excerpts from one of them. Okay, so the next letter is from, uh, it was John Adams to his daughter, Abigail, or as he called Nabby um, Adam Smith, um, and this is written a couple weeks before he was to be inaugurated um, president. Uh, so Abigail was 32 years old, and she was, as we would call now, a, a homeschool mom, and, uh, talking about the importance of uh, the education of the three sons that she was raising and um, educating. Um, so a piece of this here says, in your solitary hours, my dear daughter, you will have a delightful opportunity of attending to the education of your children, to give them a taste and attachment to study and to books, a taste for science and literature added to a turn for business, never can fail of success in life. Without learning, nothing very great can be accomplished in the way of business. But not only a thirst for knowledge should be excited and a taste for letters be cultivated, but prudence, patience, justice, temperance, resolution, modesty, and self-cultivation should be recommended to them as early as possible. The command of their passions, the restraints of their appetites, reverence for superiors, especially parents, and veneration for religion, morals, and good conduct. You will find it more for your happiness to spend your time with them in this manner than to be engaged in fashionable amusements and social entertainments, even with the best of company. But I must restrain myself and subscribe 
the name of your affectionate father, John Adams. <laughs> I I love this because uh, obviously um, education was very important to him. Um, you know, raised by a farmer and and uh, uh, by a mother who was believed to be illiterate. Um, uh, went to Harvard uh, on a scholarship at the age of fifteen. So. Uh, worked really hard and education was um, obviously something really important, but I I love that he expresses it, the importance of the well-roundedness um, uh, just beyond, beyond what the books can teach you and, uh, and uh, to encourage her to focus on the kids and not, as he said, the fashionable amusements of the time. So John Adams, two weeks before being inaugurated president. Okay, so here's a letter written uh, in 1926 by a journalist, reformer, radical, Lincoln Steve Steffens to Pete Steffens. Um, and at the time, he's 62 years old, and he's kind of a, a writing uh, a letter of uh, um, advice uh, for uh, his two-year-old son, Pete. So at the age of 62, he's writing to his two-year-old son, Pete. Uh, I'm reading the end, just the end of this letter, uh, talking about education. And he says, and an educated mind is nothing but the God-given mind of a child after his parents and his grandparents' generations have got through molding it. We can't help teaching you. You will ask that of us. But we are prone to teach you what we know, and I am going now and again to warn you. Remember, we really don't know anything. Keep your baby eyes, which are the eyes of genius, on what we don't know. That is your playground, bare and graveled, safe and unbreakable. Love your mother, but don't believe and revere her. And as for your father, laugh at him as he laughs at himself till the tears start. <laughs> so I I love that education is important, but um, the imparting that wisdom as a pretty old father, right? Uh, writing to his two year old son, um, you know, find your own way, learn your own, learn your own way. I think that's great. So the next letter is from famous playwright uh, Eugene O'Neill. Um, uh, known for um, some of his works, The Iceman Cometh and Long Day's Journey into Night, uh, uh, I believe four-time Pulitzer Prize winner, um, had three children, I believe three wives. Um, but this is, a, here's an excerpt of a letter written to um, his son Shane when he was 19 years old and who seemed to have been a, uh, getting into a little bit of trouble in school and uh, uh, was uh, <laughs> moved from school to school because of the troubles that he'd gotten into. Uh, he says, my advice on the subject of raising horses would not be much use to you. I don't know anyone in that game, what conditions or prospects are or anything else about it. All I know is if you want to get anywhere with it or with anything else, you have got to adopt an entirely different attitude from the one that you have toward getting an education. In plain words, you've got to make up your mind to study whatever you undertake and concentrate your mind on it and really work at it. 
This isn't wisdom. Any damn fool in the world knows it's true. Whether it's a question of raising horses or writing plays, you simply have to face the prospect of starting at the bottom and spending years learning how to do it. The trouble with you, I think, is that you are still too dependent on others. You expect too much from outside and demand too little of yourself. You hope everything will be made smooth and easy for you by someone else. Well, it's coming to the point where you are old enough and you have been around enough to see that this will get you exactly nowhere. You will be what you make yourself and you've got to do that job absolutely alone and on your own, whether you're in school or holding down a job. <laughs> he goes on to kind of uh, uh, encourage or maybe more scold him uh, <laughs> into, uh, you know what? suck it up. Uh, you got to make your own life. And so uh, might sound a little bit harsh, but uh, seems the, the words uh, were true back then. And uh, they are true today. Uh, it was written in 1939. Uh, so now we go to William O. Douglas, a letter to his daughter, Mildred Douglas Wells. William Douglas was a Supreme Court Justice who had been appointed by Franklin Roosevelt, known to be a protector of civil liberties, uh, fought for uh, racial tolerance, and um, I guess known as a liberal dissident. Um, he was uh, married four times, and <laughs> he did not claim to be uh, the greatest of fathers. He said, I doubt that I rated high as a father. Obviously, he rated high and accomplished a lot of other things, uh, but he writes a letter to his 32-year-old daughter, um, who um, apparently is the son that she is raising at the time is is a bit of a bit of a rebel, as he says. And so here's um, the letter in its entirety, written December 16, 1961. Dear Millie, I am glad that Ty is turning out to be a rebel. Any boy who is any good has that spark in him when he's about Ty's age. The problem is to see that it does not die out and that he retains the capacity to tell his old lady or his old man where to get off. The only dangerous people in the world are those who are rebels without a cause. And the problem is that years go by to find a good cause to which Ty can tie his rebellion. On that, you and he can get together and come up with something pretty special. And I'm sure it will all Work out to the best of the order. Merry Christmas to you all. Love, William O. Douglas. <laughs> I love that. The only dangerous people are the, the rebels without a cause. Great advice. All right. So for the next letter, we have Secretary of the United States Treasury um, during the Civil War and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Salmon P. Chase. Uh, to his daughter, Kate Chase Sprague. Um, and there, a lot is going on at the time uh, that this letter is written in 1968, uh, the impeachment trials of Andrew Johnson, uh, lots going on in the world. Uh, but he stops and he takes the uh, time to write um, this letter. 
I'm not sure of her age at the time, but she is an adult. We know. He says, how I wish you would take a different view of your social duties and cease exposing yourself by attending those wretched night parties. You could do so, I think, and lose nothing in any respect. Most of all, I long to see you an earnest Christian woman, not only religious, but happy in religion. I realize painfully how far short I come of my own ideal, but I am not on that account the less desirous that you should excel where I fail. One thing I'm sure of, that true faith in Christ is the only thing on earth really worth having and the only thing that we can carry from earth. So that's a, it's a letter written by a man who had a lot of loss in his life. Um, he had lost three wives and four daughters. Um, he only had, um, his two, two daughters, Kate and Nellie who remained, obviously he was a civil servant, you know, served his country and, and, um, was involved in a lot, uh, at a difficult time, but, to pass along the words of wisdom and and just his hope and his wish that she would have have that religion in her life. I think uh, someone who's lost so much um, had so much loss in his life, knowing that um, that's really that's really all you have to to always hold on to. Well, okay, I think that's a good stopping point for today um, in these letters to children. And I love this so much. I enjoyed so much. And thank you for those who uh, uh, listened along uh, as my son, Louie, and I were able to share the letters that um, he had written me during boot camp and just how precious those were. So those were letters to mom, but this series is um, letters to the children. And so hopefully you enjoyed listening to those. We're going to stop here for today and uh, join you back next week for a few more letters uh, to children. And um, in the meantime, go write a letter, go write a letter to um, your child or to someone special to you. Uh, and um, let's be just inspired by those who took the time to write. I know we're busy people, but there's nothing like that written word, right? With that, uh, be blessed, and we will see you back again next week for part two uh, for Letters to Our Children. 